One, two, one, two. Test, test, one, two. Yarp, yarp, yarp. Okay. I think that's us. We're good. I think we're good. I think we're good. Let me just check. Yeah, yeah. One, two, one, two. All the little lights are going the way they should. I think. And the camera's on and all my things are there. Yeah. Let's do this. Okay. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. How are we doing? Hope you're well. Um. Yeah, hope you've had a good week. Hope you've had a good few days. There we go, my brother. I can always rely on him to ring me just as soon as the podcast starts. Such as his want. But um, let me just turn that down, just in case anybody decides to ring again. Forgive me for being so tardy. Uh, call, ring a notifications. Oh, there we go. Okay. So, what a week. We've gone from record temperatures to it won't stop fucking raining. What the fuck? It's mad. It's almost like the climate's changing. You know? Imagine. It's terrible. But what did you think of the what did you think of the the heat? Listen, if you're watching this live on the thing, um on the YouTube, hit me up. On the on the lives, the top chat, the, the the chat, um, because it's uh, I'm watching it, it's there with me now, and if you want to say anything, um, you can do that. I would I would love for you to to talk to me while we're while we're doing this. That would be great. So over on the YouTube, if you're not on the YouTube, come over to the YouTube, say hello, uh, drop me a wee message. And all that cool stuff. And, uh, yeah, that'll be awesome. So, but what did you think of the heat? What did you think of the heat? 32 degrees. I'll be honest with you, it freaked me out. It really did. We're not used to that sort of temperature here in Ireland, as you, as you're obviously well aware. Most of you being, most of viewers and listeners to this, being from this parish, uh, yeah, it definitely freaked me out. I didn't like it. I like the heat. Don't get me wrong. I enjoyed the heat. But 32 degrees, it was too much for here. It's not that it's too It's too much for here. And I was very aware in my head that it wasn't normal. And that's what it was. It wasn't that I don't like it. I do like it. It's just that I was sort of very conscious of the fact that it was unusual for, for here. And that's what I didn't like. I love the heat. But then, uh, I'm also, when, when it gets above, because I'm basically pale blue, except in my arms, where I am, you know, roughly the colour of a, of a Middle Eastern date salesman in a Moroccan bazaar. Um, but the rest of me is pale blue, and I've got to go through three or four stages of white to get to, Sort of tan. And, uh, oh, there's Pete. All right, mucker. And my friend Peter Graham. If you don't know Pete, go follow him on, uh, 
on Twitter. He's a great guy, really great guy. He's our roadie. He's the Bonneville's roadie. So say hello to Pete. Just type that in there. Because I don't want to be rude. There we go. It's nice to know. It's nice to know that you're 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 there, Peter. Um, but yeah. So I've got to go through very a few stages of sort of to get the to get the pale blue. You know what I mean? Much like the rest of us. So then, when it gets really hot, you, you don't. I don't really function. I sort of shut down. I find myself. I don't drink lager lager beer like you know bottles of beer and stuff but a corona with a lime in it is sort of and i find myself just drinking boxes of the stuff just chilling it uh making it you know really really cold and then just knocking these things into me a box at a time they were very delicious so yeah because i couldn't do anything else i just couldn't function I like the train, I like the exercise. I just, you just can't. I couldn't go for a run. I couldn't. Oh, on the exercise thing. So remember, with the football, I went back to football. I went back to playing football after 20 years of not playing football. So, and then I decided that I wasn't going to uh, stick with it because it was, because my knees fucked up, basically. And um, it wasn't worth limping, basically. For uh, a week in between training sessions. Well, I'm not doing that anymore. I've been going back. I'm not doing an awful lot. I'm I'm sticking. I'm standing goal. I'm, I'm a good goal. I'm a goalkeeper. I'm an average goalkeeper. Getting better, I hope. And um, yeah. So I was out, I was out, we're out last night and played a full game. And then today I come home. You know, at the ice mini and you know, with an ice pack and stuff. Do a bit of stretching. And then I was out today doing some some kettlebells. And uh, I'm I'm walking with no limps, no no pains. Maybe a little bit, a little bit stiff, but not much. So fucking delighted! I'm really really happy about that, because it was annoying me that it was it was really bugging me that, that thought that I couldn't do something because <laughs> I'm a bit like that. And yeah, so yeah, so I can do it as long as I, I have to manage myself. I mean, my leg is I have to strap my leg up. Honestly, it's like. I'm like fucking Robocop on my right leg of all these strappings and gaffer tape to tape whole things together. But I'm there. I'm playing. I'm doing okay. I'm very happy about it. Um, and I went to the league. The, the football team is, is Oxford. Oxford United here in Lurgan. So uh, my mate Richie's the manager, coach guy of that. Of that. So I'm very excited about that, actually. Because I really enjoyed it. I haven't played a team sport, really, in quite a while. And... You know, it's a different thrill. My, my game's cycling. So the last sort of competitive events I've done was cyclocross and road racing and time trialing. And it's a, it's very much an individual. It's, it's supposed to be a team sport, but it's not really. Not at the amateur level. Yeah. So I miss the thrill of that competition, really. Is, I'll be honest with you. But um, playing that football was, was very exciting. It's very, I love it. So I hope I'm going, fingers crossed for me. I hope I'm going to be able to continue uh, doing that. So, yeah. So, uh, the heat was mental. Yeah, Pete. Absolutely, brother. The heat was mental, but won't complain. No, no, definitely not going to complain. Just saying. Not complaining. Just saying. So, to the podcast. Let's do this. Oh, a couple of little things. I'm working on... The Bonnevilles were playing a gig this Saturday. 
uh, in the Diamond Rock Club in Hull, which is just outside Ballymena. And it's an early one, sold out now, unfortunately. But I, I don't know if you want to contact them. If you want to go, they might be able to hustle a few tickets. It was outside. They've, I think they've decided to move it inside. The legislation has changed. Just during the week, the, the Stormont has issued some guidance to venues, and we can now have gigs inside. But they are going to, they are uh, socially distanced and everything. So the Bonnevilles are going to be playing our first gig, first gig proper. We did that thing for Dragon Claw Whiskey. It wasn't a gig, though. So our first gig proper since New Year's Eve 2019-2020. So it's over a year and a half since we've played a fucking gig. Fuck you, COVID. That breaks my heart to say that. My bread and butter's gig, gigging, and I don't mean like financially, which it is, but in my heart and my soul, I gig, I play gigs. It was always what I wanted to do and be. It was a child. My childhood dream is to be a musician. Oh, it's, heart, it's fucking heartbreaking to think that we haven't played. And you know, it's, it's, I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I hope you don't think I'm being a knobhead here, but we're kind of good at it. You know, we are. We're kind of good. The Bonnevilles are good at what we do. Again, not, not blowing smoke up my own ass or anything. Self praise is no praise. But we're good at it. And to not be able to do it, it, it really has been difficult. It's been difficult for everybody. I'm not, not, um, we're not a special case. Just saying. But we're back at it this Saturday. Then we're playing Standal Festival next month. Yeah, 14th, 14th of August. Standal Festival. Get your tickets for that. I believe there's tickets still available. It's an outdoor festival. And everybody's going to be, uh, it's all socially distanced and everything outside. I think the numbers are very limited. I think you can get like thousands at that festival and they've limited it to like 500 or something. So, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. So there we go. So get your ticks for that. Yeah, Pete is talking to me here on the, on the chats. Yeah, I know you won't complain and I agree. It was a bit worrying. What is to come? Yeah, that is the, the big question. You, you know the the um my brother was talking to me the other the other week, my brother Desi, and he was saying about um he was watching uh David Attenborough and he's made a new series of uh, his most recent series of those wonderful documentaries that he makes. And he basically it's a it's a warning letter and he's saying, Listen, I'm an old guy, I haven't got long left on this planet. And so, but I am very, very worried because he's watched, he's reported on these, the, 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 the decline in nature. He's seen it with, he hasn't reported on it. He's reporting on it so much really now, but he's, he's bore witness to it. You know, he talked about, he used to have to fly for days into the wilderness to go, you know, oh, and there was wilderness for days to fly over. No more. It's all gone, you know. And uh, he, he spoke about these, Speaking about these um, these seas and oceans full of life and not full of life anymore. But my brother was talking to me about them and about how depressing it is and asked me had I seen them. And I said no, I hadn't. I, I couldn't. I, could, I can't watch them. They're fucking depressing as fuck. Because it's not because the message isn't right or important. It is. It's both of those things essentially important and, and, and 
and you know it's urgent but i, I kind of know what's happening and i can't bear to hear it anymore it's just i've been going on about this all my life i remember trying to join the uh the world wildlife federation when i was 16 and stuff like that so yeah yeah but anyway so there we go no fun so let's kick this thing off like I said, everybody, like, share, subscribe, do the thing, do the thing. If you're if you're watching this or whatever, you know, throw it up onto the YouTube. Throw it our uh, the Twitters. Let people know this is happening. So we're going to have a couple of the stories I'm going to talk to you about tonight. The two basically is two things. My one of my favorite journalists and a great guy called Chris Hedges, who you've maybe heard me mention in the past. Um, he, he wrote an important uh, uh, article during the week about a, a guy called Daniel Hill. I'm going to talk about him. And then I'm going to talk about Irish vampires. Ooh, very sexy class. It's not actually very sexy. Irish vampires aren't like, um, they're not like the old Hammer House, Suave McSuaveson, fucking flying in through your window to raid your daughter. Which is what the vampire was. He wasn't really biting her neck. He was, you know, having his way with her. But although we'll talk about all that later. But before we get to that, a couple of little things. Uh, tonight on RTE One, the BAFTA-nominated, hard-hitting documentary called Totally Innocent, about the Bally Murphy Massacre, is on RTE, RTE 1, at 9.30 tonight. Now, I haven't seen this, so I'm going to be watching it. It's supposed to be uh, quite, quite the, uh, quite the program, quite the document. And then, uh, so that's that. Now, this happened today. This is another story now, and I'm not going to talk much about it. I'm just going to read a little thing, and it's about it's it's a statement from the Braniel Nursery and Primary School. So, Braniel Nursery and Primary School is in, is a is a nursery and primary school in East Belfast, and it's an integrated school. And they had recently d decided to set up an Irish language unit with. Um, being led by, not just with, but being led by the massively impressive Linda Irvine. Um, so, I'm going to read this little statement. I don't know if you're aware of this, but this, this is just um, from today. Due to an ongoing social media hate campaign against some individuals and the integrated Nyskolna it is with great sadness that it is sorry, that it is with great sadness that it is choosing to relocate to an alternative location. A social media campaign was started and fueled by those who are not connected to the school, nor are parents of our school, and who are clearly were not interested in facts and truth, who allowed disgusting comments to be posted and that were littered with unfounded erroneous allegations about certain individuals and the school. 
Braneel Nursery and Primary School is not and should never be thought of as a contested space. We are proud to be shared space for all. We welcome all children, parents, families, individuals, respective of religion, faith, creed or language, and always will. And so say all of us. These comments, made mostly by those who are not even from our school community on social media, do not in any way reflect the opinions and beliefs and governors of the entire staff of the school. You're sincerely the Board of Governors uh, and staff of the Brunel Nursery and Primary School. Now, basically what's happened there is... Uh, a group of loyalists. That's basically what you know. I'm, there's no point in saying that they're not saying that they're loyalists. They are loyalists. So uh, they've basically harassed these people into making this decision, and it must have been quite severe. I, I, I this was news to me. I knew the school was happening. I've, I've, without having, without knowing anything about it, they were. I mean, you can't do anything these days without getting fucking trolled online. I got called a fascist the other day for making a joke. So, you know, this was definitely going to come under uh, certain uh, scrutiny from certain fucking halfwits who are, as much as they're opposed to Irish language, I would, I would, you know, accuse them of being opposed to education in, as a whole. They have nothing to offer. And it's a shame. But it must have been quite severe for them to decide to move the school. You know, I read another little statement where they said the the the, the nice school have a they have another location and the and the and Braneel was only ever a temporary supposed to be a temporary place anyway until they got this other place ready. So I don't think it's gonna hold them back any. But that they had to do it is fucking shameful. And I'm seeing people saying things online, you know, like Northern Ireland twenty twenty. It's not Northern Ireland. It's, this this is a few fucking halfwits. Now, it, it it it's not to say that they're not to be taken seriously, and I and I do you know if 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 the people involved with the project, the Neeskull and Braneel have decided to do this, I back them fully. I wouldn't. I'm not second guessing them at all. But you know, um, it is a minority of people. But I remember, I do remember this now. I remember just on that. Well, it's not about that specifically, but I remember talking to a friend of mine in England years ago, and they were saying they couldn't understand how, you know, things that went on here, and they, they couldn't get their head around it. And I was saying, well, listen, it's not everybody that's involved. It's not, you know, it's it's a small minority, and I, said, well, I don't understand how that happens. How does a small minority take control of a society? And I, the way I. So, sort of thought of it and explained it to him was well it only takes one man with a gun with one bullet in it and prepared to use it to control a thousand people you know it's that simple and that's sort of the that, that, that's sort of a it's maybe an awkward analogy but it's the same sort of thing really isn't it you know it just takes a couple of fucking halfwits to be putting out threats, putting out... I don't know what the rumours are or what, what it is, the, the, the things that they're trying to say, but I can guess. You can too. We know what these people say. We know what they do. So, it's this is not connected. Although it is connected, it's connected by sort of sort of round the houses. So I read this today, and I fucking, honest to God, I nearly took a turn in my eye. 
They actually put it up on Twitter. They couldn't, I couldn't believe that this wasn't trending. But it, but I went back and looked at it again, and then I realised that the article was actually from 1994. Why this come up on my Twitter? 20... What is it? What Somebody do the math. 20, 26 years later. I can't figure that one out. But this is the article. I'm going to read it anyway. The UDA has drawn up doomsday plans. Loyalist paramilitaries have drawn up a chilling doomsday plan of action against fucking against the with British withdrawal from Northern Ireland that was claimed last night. The plan was said to have been drawn up over several years by the Ulster Defence Association, the largest loyalist paramilitary group, and includes details of religious trends in many parts of the province. The Belfast-based Sunday Life newspaper published a series of maps showing four options on what the territory the UDA believes could hold. Now, the map wasn't on the bloody article. I would love to have seen that. I wonder if I can get that away. Again, see if maybe I've missed it. No, it's not there. Ugh. No, that's a shame. I'd like to have seen what the UDA brain trust. What a map. How, I've always wanted to see what a map drawn with crayon looks like. Uh. So, showing four options on what the territory the UDA believes it could hold. What would be given up and what might be fought for. In essence, the border would be redrawn with Protestants consolidating themselves in a smaller Ulster in the northeast of the present province. The plan allegedly suggests that two or three, or probably three of Northern Ireland's six counties would be lost. Hopefully Armagh would be one of those. Uh, Ireland six uh, uh, and considers options such as taking Catholics living in the east of the province hostage as bargaining chips for the release of Protestants trapped in the surrendered west. Neither the Northern Ireland office nor the security forces would make any comment on the blueprint and one document that was claimed said the objective would be to establish an ethnic Protestant homeland. They've already tried that. An ethnic Protestant homeland with adequate forces deployed along a defensive border and the consolidation of territory as an immediate objective. The doomsday scenario recognises that there would be large numbers of Catholics left within the Protestant homeland and offers three chilling options on dealing with them. Expulsion, internment or nullification. That's, that is chilling all right, isn't it? A prominent member of the Reverend Ian Paisley's Democratic Unionist Party, Mr. Sammy Wilson, said last night, described last night described the alleged doomsday plan as a very valuable return to reality <laughs> mind fucking blown now you can imagine when i read that today i didn't realize i had to go as i said i had to go back an hour later and then i realized it was 1994 that was published i don't know why it was reposted but it was this is but even still that's fucking breathtaking isn't it Mr. Sammy Wilson last night described the alleged doomsday plan as a very valuable return to reality. Now that should have been all the warning that we needed whenever we were talking to and about and relying on the judgement of people like Sammy Wilson going into Brexit and, you know, being the, the chief Brexit negotiator for for the, for the DUP, etc. Et and all that, you know, essentially for Northern Ireland, really. Uh, 
and this is the this is the judgment that these people display. So, yeah, it's, yeah. Pete has comment. That's so sad. What kind of people are frightened of knowledge? Yeah, it's the yards to the, the the school. So, if you didn't know about that, you know that that that's the state of affairs with that school. It's never going to be easy doing these things. <clears throat> but whenever you're up against sort of bigotry like that, it just makes things harder, doesn't it? it makes things. But they're going to succeed because that woman, Linda Irvine, is a force to be reckoned with, and I don't reckon that these assholes are going to stop her. Just saw a wee peddler, a guitar peddler that I needed <coughs> for tomorrow. <clears throat> We're going to be practicing tomorrow. So. That's an interesting little article. I, w I would hope to think that the UDA and pr uh, loyalism in general, I hope to God that it's in a different mental place and not looking to, as they say, um, expel in turn or nullify Catholics left within the Protestant homeland. And I know that was 26 years ago, 27 years ago. Still staggering that it was ever, ever, ever happened, and these people are still in business. They're, they're still in business. Sammy Wilson's an, an MLA, an MP. You know, people will vote for this fucking clown. There we go. So we'll move on. So the article, the, the main article I want to talk about, and this is I'll throw up a, a little picture here on. Uh, yeah, so the article is written by Chris Hedges, and as you know, Chris, Hed Chris Hedges is one of the, not only great journalists, he's a great thinker, he's actually a theologian, now, I'm, not a, I'm not a person of religion, but I, I do respect genuine, uh, or I'm not a person of faith, I should say. But I do, I do respect genuine, decent people, no, no matter their faith, that have a f that, that 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 are believers, and I do respect it a lot, actually. And I do believe that that within those manuscripts and within those teachings, there is there is a massive wisdom to be found, whether it's the Quran or the Bible or uh, the Torah or the the books from teachings of Buddha who doesn't claim to be a god or a religion but or whatever <clears throat> I believe that there's a there's a there's a wisdom to be mined to be had that we should be it should be considered and it's okay to teach these things and to know these things and to learn about these things. You don't have to believe. You don't have to become a fire-breathing Christian fundamentalist. And I think that's what puts people off a lot. Of, a lot of the time, you know, certainly puts people like me off. You couldn't get me to go. You know, I'm I was raised a Catholic, and you know, I was a good Catholic boy. I get well as much as I was. You know, you know, until I was sixteen or seventeen, I was still going to mass every Sunday and doing all that stuff. But you know. 
But anyway, I digress. So, but anyway, Chris Hedges is a man of faith and an author, a journalist, teacher. He's an ordained minister, as it happens. And uh, I'm a huge fan. I have a couple of his books. One of his books, he wrote a book. The first book I read of his, I recommended it on this podcast once upon a time, called American Fascists. And it's about the rise of the Christian fundamentalist right. And he predicts, he doesn't mention Trump by name, but he does mention some character like him and about how he surrounded himself. This man who was obviously of no faith. The man had never been inside a religious institution in his life and meant it. But he but he describes in 2007-2008 how everything's headed in that direction. And then his latest book is called America, The Farewell Story. So I would recommend, I mean, he, 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 he he's just an amazing person. I'm, I'm such a fan, I can't begin to tell you. So he wrote this article. And this article is quite long. I'm not going to read it all because I think it will take a while. So what I'm going to do, while it's on, I'm going to have the music on in the background to hopefully make this next five or ten minutes pass a little easier. So hopefully you can hear that, just tipping away in the background. So here we go. Chris Hedges, The Price of Conscience. Princeton, New Jersey where he's writing from. Daniel Hale, a former a former intelligence analyst in the drone program for the Air Force, who was a private contractor in 2013, leaked some 17 classified documents about drone strikes to the press, was sentenced today to 45 months in prison. That's four years. Near enough. The documents published by The Intercept on October 15, 2015, exposed that between January 2012 and February 2013, U.S. Special Operations airstrikes killed more than 200 people. Of those, only 35 were the intended targets. For one five-month period of operation, according to the documents, nearly 90% of the people killed in airstrikes were not the intended targets. The civilian dead, usually innocent bystanders, Bystanders were routinely classified as enemies killed in action. The Justice Department coerced Hale, who was deployed to Afghanistan in 2012 on March 31st to plead guilty to one count of violating the Espionage Act, a law passed in 1917. This is, by the way, this is the same law that they used to... Uh, prosecute Chelsea Manning and what a brave uh, woman she is unfucking believable but offered uh, offered uh, uh, clemency and refused it and uh, went back to jail and was tortured and accepted it and now she's out thank God so this law goes back to 1917 this is what they're prosecuting these people under like 1917 and they're prosecuting He's spilling the beans about a, the, the drone program in the, in, the, in the 21st century. And they're using the law from 1917 to prosecute him. So, onwards. 
a law passed in 1917 designed to prosecute those who passed on state secrets to a hostile power, and not those who exposed to the public government lies and crimes, Hale admitted as part of the plea deal to retention and transmission of national security information, and leaking 11 classified documents to a journalist. If he had refused the plea deal, he could have spent 50 years in prison. Hale, in a handwritten letter to Judge Liam O'Grady on July 18, explained why he leaked classified information, writing that the drone attacks and the war in Afghanistan had little to do with preventing terror from coming into the United States and a lot more to do with protecting the profits of weapons manufacturers and so-called defence contractors. At the top ten page, at the top of the ten page letter, Hale quoted U.S. Navy Admiral Jean Larocque, speaking to a reporter in 1995. We now kill a thousand people without ever seeing them. Now you push a button thousands of miles away, and since it's all done by remote control, there's no remorse. Then we come home in triumph. In my capacity, this is Hale writing now, the the, the convicted um, analyst. In my capacity. As a signals intelligence analyst stationed at Bagram Air Base, I was made to track down the geographic location of handset cell phone devices believed to be in the possession of so-called enemy combatants. He'll explain to the judge, to accomplish, the, to accomplish this mission required access to a complex chain of globe-spanning satellites capable of maintaining an unbroken connection with remotely piloted aircraft commonly referred to as drones. Once a steady connection is made and a targeted cell phone device is acquired, an imagery analysis in the US in coordination with a drone pilot and camera operator would take over using information I provided to surveil everything that occurred within the drone's field of vision. This was done most often to document the day-to-day lives of suspected militants. Sometimes, under the right conditions, an attempt at capture would be made. Other times, a decision to strike and kill them where they stood would be wed. He recalled the first time he witnessed a drone strike, a few days after he arrived in Afghanistan. Early that morning, before dawn, a group of men had gathered together in the mountain ranges of Pataka province, around a campfire, carrying weapons and brewing tea. He wrote, that they carried weapons with them would not have been considered out of the ordinary in the place I grew up, much less within the virtually lawless tribal territories outside the control of the Afghan authorities, except that among them was a suspected member of the Taliban, given away by the targeted cell phone device in his pocket. As for the remaining individuals to be armed, of military aides and sitting in the presence of an alleged enemy combatant was enough evidence to place them under suspicion as well. Despite having peacefully assembled, posing no threat, the fate of the now tea-drinking men had all but been fulfilled. I could only look on as I sat by and watched through a computer monitor when a sudden terrifying flurry of hellfire missiles. What a name came crashing down, splattering purple-coloured crystal guts 
on the side of the morning mountain. Read that again. And I watched through a computer monitor when a sudden terrifying flurry of hailfire missiles came crashing down, splattering purple-colored crystal guts on the side of the morning mountain. Poetry, actually. Not terrible, gruesome, grim poetry, but poetry. Wow. That's truly awful. This was his first experience with scenes of graphic violence carried out from the cold comfort of a computer chair. There would be many more. Not a day goes by that I don't question the justification for my actions, he wrote. By the rules of engagement, it may have been permissible for me to have helped to kill those men whose language I did not speak, customs I did not understand, and crimes I could not identify in the gruesome manner that I did watch them die. But how could it have been considered honourable for me to have continuously laid in wait for the next opportunity to kill unsuspecting persons who more often than not are posing no danger to me or any other person at the time. That's important. Never mind honourable, how could it be that any thinking person continued to believe that it was necessary for the protection of the United States of America to be in Afghanistan and killing people, not one of whom present was responsible for the September the 11th attacks on our nation, notwithstanding in 2012, a full year after the demise of Osama bin Laden in Pakistan, I was part of killing misguided young men who were mere children on the day of the nine, of 9-11. And I'll add a little add-on to that. When Chris Hedges talks about the killing of Osama bin Laden, and Chris Hedges is an, is an American, he doesn't call it the you know the, the killing of Osama. He calls it the assassination of Osama, the murder of Osama bin Laden, because Osama bin Laden was was unarmed. And whether you think Osama bin Laden was a good guy or a bad guy, whatever it means, clearly he was a fucking lunatic. But you're supposed to have you're supposed to have due process. You're supposed to have, the law is supposed to mean something. These countries, the USA, Britain, among them, chiefly among them, go on about the rule of law and democracy and, you know, and with their propaganda, especially American prop, truth and justice in the American way, all that crap. Does this sound like truth and justice? It's definitely the American way, though. So, we'll read on. Listen, this article is long. I'm not going to read it all. So, I'll just... um. So, he and other service members were confronted with the privatization. Remember what? Sorry, remember I was talking about the privatization of war. About um, uh, the Biden administration has withdrawn troops from Afghanistan, but who's staying? Who's staying? And twenty-four thousand private contractors. Now they're not all well beggars. They're not all bricklayers. Okay, they're soldiers. There are some people doing those those jobs, but they're mostly soldiers. Make no mistake. So, on with this. 
He and other service members were confronted with the privatisation of war, where contract mercenaries outnumbered uniform-wearing soldiers two to one and earned as much as ten times their salary. Meanwhile, it did not matter, did not matter whether I was as whether it was as I had seen an Afghan farmer blown in half yet miraculously conscious and pointlessly trying to scoop his insides off the ground, or whether it was an American flag draped coffin lowered into the Arlington National Cemetery to the sound of a twenty one gun salute, he wrote. Bang bang bang. Both suffered both served to justify the easy flow of capital at the cost of blood, theirs and ours. When I think of this, I am grief-stricken and I am ashamed of myself for the things I've done to support it. He described to the judge the most harrowing day of my life that took place a few months after, a few months into his deployment, when a routine surveillance mission turned into disaster. For weeks he had been tracking the movements of a ring of carbon manufacturers living Around Jalalabad, he wrote, car bombs were directed at US bases and had become increasingly frequent and deadly problem that summer. So much effort was put into stopping them. It was windy and clouded afternoon when it was a windy and clouded afternoon when one of the suspects had been discovered headed eastbound, driving at a high rate of speed. This alarmed my superiors, who believed he might be attempting to escape across the border into Pakistan. A drone strike was our only chance, and it had already begun lining up to take the shot, he continued. But the less advanced Predator drone found it difficult to see through clouds and compete against strong headwinds. The single payload MQ-1, I guess that's the the, the, the drone, failed to connect the missile, okay, failed to connect with its target, instead missing by a few metres. The vehicle damaged but still drivable, continued on ahead after narrowly avoiding destruction. Eventually, one once the concern of another incoming missile subsided, the driver stopped, got out of the car, checked himself as though he could not believe he was still alive, and out of the passenger side came a woman wearing an unmistakable burqa. As astounding as it was to have just learned there had been a woman, possibly his wife, there with the man we intended to kill moments ago, I did not have the chance to see what happened next before the drone diverted its cameras when she frantically began to pull something out of the back of the car. He learned a few days later from his commanding officer what took place next. There indeed had been the suspect's wife with him in the car, he wrote, and in the back with their two young daughters, aged five and three years old. A cadre of Afghan soldiers were sent to investigate where the car had stopped the following day. It was there they found them placed in the dumpster nearby. The eldest was found dead due to the unspecified wounds caused by shrapnel that pierced her body and the younger sister was alive but severely, severely dehydrated. As my commanding officer relayed this information to us, she seemed to express disgust, not for the fact that we had errantly fired at a man and his family having killed one of his daughters, but for the suspected bomb maker having ordered his wife to dump the bodies of their daughters in the trash 
so that the two of them could escape more quickly across the border. Now whenever I encounter an individual who thinks that drone warfare is justified and reliably keeps America safe, I remember that time and ask myself, how could I possibly continue to believe that I am a good person deserving of life and the right to pursue, to pursue happiness? Okay, I'm going to read one more paragraph and then we'll finish this. One year later, at a farewell gathering for those of us who would soon be leaving military service, I sat alone transfixed by the television. While others reminisced together, he continued, on television was breaking the news of the president giving his first public remarks about the policy surrounding the use of drone technology in warfare. His remarks were made to reassure the public of reports scrutinizing the death of civilians in drone strikes and the targeting of American citizens. Remember now, the Obama administration killed an American citizen with a drone strike. You know about that, right, don't you? You know all about that. No, you've never heard of that. No. Of course you haven't. Why would you? Why would they tell you that? So, the president said that a high standard of near certainty needed to be met in order to ensure that no civilians were present. From what I knew of the instances where civilians plausibly could have been present, those killed were nearly always designated enemies killed in action unless proven otherwise. Nonetheless, I continued to heed his words as the president went on to explain how a drone could be used to eliminate someone who posed an imminent threat to the United States. Using the analogy of a sniper, of taking out a sniper with a sight set on an unassuming crowd of people, the president likened the use of drones to prevent a would-be terrorist from carrying out his evil plot. But as I understood it to be the unassuming crowd, I mean those who lived in fear and terror of drones in the skies, and the sniper in this scenario had been me. I came to believe that the policy of drone assassination was being used to mislead the public and that it keeps us safe. And when I finally left the military, still processing what I'd been part of, I began to speak out, believing my participation in the drone program to have been deeply wrong. Hale threw himself into anti-war activism when he left the military, speaking out about the indiscriminate killing of hundreds, perhaps thousands of non-combatants, including children. And Yeah, so I'm going to stop there. There's, there's another three or four or five. There's quite a bit, actually. So I'm not going to... So j- just on the... To, to finish it... Um, the the general that was that 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 Hale um, quoted from 1984 saying that the remote nature of the warfare that was being carried out <coughs> would depersonalize the war and this hasn't happened. Drone operators are getting PTSD and they're now having trouble recruiting them because it's just as harrowing as you can imagine from this man's testimony. So uh, he just says here, depression is a constant. Uh, the telltale signs of a person afflicted with PTSD and depression can often be outwardly observ- observed and practically universally recognizable. Hard lines set about the face and jaws. Eyes once bright, bright and wide, now deep set and fearful. Inexplicable sudden loss of interest in things that used to spark joy. My God. So there you go. So have a go at that. 
I'll put the link in the in the show notes. And so that's where we are with this. So Mikhail has been sentenced to four years in jail. He took a plea deal to get that. Now, as it said in the in the article there, the same uh, it was the, um, the law a law from nineteen from nineteen seventeen. The nineteen seventeen is when the when the U.S. entered World War One, so that law was brought in for that reason. Um, the way it works, so, so for example, uh, here's a thing you may not know from around the same era, and for the same reason, the Spanish flu is called the Spanish flu. Why is it called the Spanish flu? Well, because it originated in Spain, didn't it, Andrew? No, it didn't. It originated in an American army base in America, in America, Kansas, I believe. The reason it's called the Spanish flu is because Spain was neutral during the war and there was no restrictions on the reporters and what they could report. So the 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 British and the Americans and the, the Allies, they weren't technically the Allies. They weren't, those journalists weren't allowed to report certain things because they were at war. They're, the country was in a state of war, so you're you're restricted in what you can report, which is normal during war. Spain wasn't in the war, so they were allowed to report. So then, historically, it got called the Spanish flu. It wasn't the Spanish flu, it was an American flu. Killed all those people. So, under the same type of thing, the 1917 law that was brought in to stop people basically spying on the US is being used for these whistleblowers. Whistleblowers should be protected, as we know. <clears throat> so, shocking stuff altogether. I was, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest with you, I'm a wee bit traumatised after reading all that. <sighs> so we're going to move on. Team tune. Another subject. Let me get a drink of water. Irish vampires. Oh yeah. Now, we here in Ireland know all about vampires. But, we did not. We invented them, but the vampire is common across the world. Across all ancient cultures, there's a vampire type character. And they've all, they've all got their own particular traits and flavours and, you know, they all got their own national characteristics, I guess, is what you could call it. But, and Ireland is no different. We have our own, we have our own uh, vampire. So I'm going to take that picture off the screen because it's very... And I did have, by the way, I had a little interview <coughs> with Chris Hedges teed up. Do you know what? I'm going to do that. I'm going to play that first. So this is the great man, Chris Hedges, talking about that very article. Sorry, I've just sort of I've, I missed this. I missed this. It's only a couple of minutes, so you can have a listen to this and tell me what you think. And a watch. So this is on. Come watch. This is on RT. 
And joining us now is Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist uh, Chris Hedges, who actually is the person who turned us on to this story. Uh, he wrote a column about Upman it uh, last week, which amazing. I thought was uh, extremely strong. It has a lot of people, a lot of Americans thinking about this. Uh, Chris, we bring you back in now. Maybe a more specific question is about this comment by the judge where he says, or seems to imply anyway, that, look, what you did was right because it appears the government was lying, but you were wrong to reveal or steal these documents. What do you make of that logic? Well, I think what the judge was saying, that he wasn't being prosecuted because when Daniel Hale left the military, he became very involved in uh, the anti-war movement and was very outspoken uh, uh, about the misuse of drones. Uh, but as a journalist, uh, our lifeblood depends on people within the systems of power uh, speaking to the press and providing uh, documentation that shows malfeasance, fraud, lies, even war crimes. Uh, but without that documentation, it's very hard for us as journalists to go forward uh, and, uh, and publish that information. Uh, so uh, what Hale did is uh, the lifeblood of American investigative reporting. Uh, but we have seen an assault now on whistleblowers ramped up under the Obama administration. Obama prosecuted eight whistleblowers under the Espionage Act, which mm. is not an act designed to shut down whistleblowing. It is an act written in 1917 uh, to prosecute people who give uh, government secrets or classified information to a foreign power. So it's really the misuse of the Espionage Act, which has been continued. Uh, but Obama's uh, eight uh, uses of the Espionage Act, that, that's more than all administrations since 1917 combined. Uh, and Hale is another victim to that. So, of course, uh, Kiriak, John Kiriako and hmm. Drake and all sorts of people uh, ha who had have attempted in the case of Kiriako was about torture. In the case of Daniel Hale, it's about uh, hundreds, perhaps thousands of non-combatant casualties from drone strikes. Um, this is really vital information. And, and it's not just about going after uh, someone like Hale. It, it's really a, a kind of a death blow to the press itself because it prohibits the press from shining a light on the inner workings of power. It's a, it's a, and I'm quite surprised in a way that this case hasn't gotten more attention from uh, human rights groups, the ACLU, Penn, and mainstream media outlets who you would think would be up in arms about this. Yeah, I'm a little... I am not surprised, frankly, because I see that that is the tendency where we are going with this type of thing, uh, where governments and these types of agencies are cheerleaded rather than question something you are very familiar with. By the way, there was one other thing the judge did that seemed to bother me. I don't know if it bothered you a little bit as I was reading that he seemed to be questioning the character of Mr. Hale, uh, like almost accusing him of showboating, which does that is that really his business? If what is isn't it really more a question of what whether he did something which was wrong or right? Yeah, no, I, I did like you feel that he crossed a line there into kind of a wanton character assassination or gratuitous character assassination, which had nothing to do with the case. Um, so, yes, I felt the same way you did on that. Do you, is, there anything, is there anything to learn from this that will help us down the line, Chris? Well, there were many of us who came out of the Middle East. I spent seven years in the Middle East. I was the Middle East bureau chief for The New York Times, who were very outspoken against the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan, for precisely this reason, 
these kind of drone, these drones circle 24 hours a day and delivering death from the skies uh, have turned most of the Muslim world against us. Uh, it's been completely counterproductive. And I think uh, Hale understood that. And he sought to inform the American public. But we can't have a debate if we don't know the hmm. truth. And, and we know the truth about drones because of the courage of Daniel Hale. Well said. Thanks so much, as uh, usual. Uh, we appreciate it. Chris Hedges. So there we go. The great Chris Hedges. As, as I've said, the, you know, I am, I'm a massive, massive fan. I absolutely love the man. Uh, so you should check his stuff out. I find that whole thing very harrowing. Just realized that my mic, that the, the speakers are on in the room here. So hopefully that hasn't fucked up the thing, but it won't have. Won't affect it too much. So, let's push on. What's the next thing? Oh, yes. This is great. We like this. Vampires. Arrgh. Okay. So, as I was saying, all cultures have their vampires. There's Chinese vampires and Japanese vampires and African vampires. They're not called vampires. They're called their own thing. But it's the same idea. This blood-sucking creature that comes out at night. And, and these things, you know, the, 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 the modern Western European vampire is... A, it comes from... The, this idea of purity... The, the idea of purity of your your essentially your daughter so this the guy that we have from the the Dracula the novelization by Bram Stoker an Irish man I'll read about that um, it's, so it's about this purity keeping your daughters pure and all this sort of stuff which is absolutely fascinating so here's a great article and I'm going to read it out to you and it's brilliant and it's called Irish Road Trip. Uh, the, the website is called the Irish Road Trip. That's where this headline is from. On the, the where am I here? So that's where this headline is from. From a website called the Irish Road Trip.com. And it's Albert now we have a connect the Bonnevilles have a connection to Abertock. <gasps> yes we do. This is brilliant. I fucking love this. So I'm gonna play you a trailer for a movie that we have a song in features this guy. So, Abertuck, the terrifying tale of the Irish vampire. And when I put this up today, Sarah O'Neill, the artist, who uh, I follow on Instagram and Twitter, she's fantastic. I spoke about her a few weeks back. Um, she lives up there in the North Coast. And she went to visit where he's allegedly buried this guy. So she says that whenever, forever up there again, who will be obviously she'll let us know where to go to go, to go and find this dude uh, where he's supposed to be buried so I'll read you the story about Abertuck and then play some really class so the terrifying tale of the Irish vampire when I was a kid there were two tales from Irish folklore that terrified me the one about the banshee everybody knows about the banshee right you all know about that I know everyone knows about the Banshee and the story of Abertach. Now, if you've ever heard of Abertach, it's the Irish vampire. 
one of the fiercest of the very many Irish mythological creatures. Ireland, like many countries, is home to various tales and legends of terrifying creatures and spirits. None scared me as much as when I was growing up as the one about Abertock. This article has been written by a dude called Keith O'Hara, who I do not know, and I should have. Keith O'Hara, I don't know who he is. There's a, oh, thanks for it. Oh, he's just, I thought he's just an Irish guy. He's just writing about Ireland. There you go. So, seems cool. So, I digress. Uh, over the years, I've heard very many different about Abertacht. Below you'll find everything you need to know about the Irish vampire, including the link to Bram Stoker and much more. Over the years, I've heard many different stories about the Abertach. Each story tends to vary a little, but the majority follow a similar tale. It all began with an Irish historian by the name of Patrick Weston Joyce. Joyce was born in Ballyorgan in the mighty Ballyhura Mountains, which straddled the borders of Limerick and Cork. One of the many books penned by Joyce was published in 1869 and was titled The Origin and History of Irish Names and Places and inside the pages of this book that the world was first introduced it was inside this book that the world was first introduced to the Abertach. So there's a couple of different versions of this so I'm going to hit you with them now, right? Very short, don't worry. I'm not going to be waffling on. In this book Joyce tells of a parish in Derry called Slotaverde. It really should be called Love Laugh Laftaverde. Slotaverde. That's fine. I, I, I'm struggling with that one. It's in this parish that there stands the monument of Abertach. In the book, Joyce states that Abertach is another word for dwarf. There is a place in the parish of Errigal in Derry called Slotaverde. But it ought to have been called Lactaverde or Lact or Sepatural Sepatural Monument of the Abertacht or Dwarf. I wish I had read this before I fucking started because there's obviously a couple of fucking tongue twisters in this one. Um, he explains the dwarf was a cruel creature and that it possessed a powerful type of magic. And those who were terrorized by the Abertacht soon had their prayers answered. The battle begins. A local chieftain, some believed that this was the legend, Fionn McConnell, who killed the Abertach and was buried and buried him upwards nearby. The locals thought their luck had changed. However, the very next day the dwarf was back and he was twice as evil as he'd ever been. The chieftain returned and killed the Abertach for a second time and proceeded to bury him the same as before. Surely this was the end. Alas, the dwarf escaped. His grave and spread his terror across the whole of Ireland. The chieftain was baffled. He had slain the Abertach twice now and had, had managed to return to Ireland again and again. Deciding that he couldn't risk the dwarf returning three times, he consulted a local druid. The druid advised that he must slay the Abertach again, but this time, when it came to burying it, he must bury the creature upside down. The druid believed that this should quench the, dwar the dwarf's magic this worked and the Abertach never returned. How fucking class is that? And so I put that, so Sir O'Neill contacted me and then uh, Simon from O'Reill Productions contacted me and said, he's looking to make a movie about this and then, uh, brilliant, lovely stuff. So 
Legend number two, the modern day vampire. There's another version of the legend that's much more closely linked to the modern day vampire. In this version of the tale, the Abertacht is killed and buried. However, when it escapes its grave, it does so to find fresh blood to drink. In this version, the chieftain goes by the name of Kian, and he consults a Christian saint instead of a druid. The story goes that the saint told Kian that the only way to kill the vampire was to find a sword made of yew wood. Oh, I wish I had my book out here, but trees, shit, I could have told you what the significance of yew wood was. Bollocks. Next time. The saint advised Kian that once the Abertak was killed, he would need to bury him upside down and that he would need to find a great stone to lock it in for good. Brilliant. Kahan is said to have killed Abertak with ease after burying it nearby. He had then left the great stone and placed it over the newly dug grave. That's fantastic. I bet you the yew wood is like, that's the tree that Christ was crucified on or something like that. There's going to be something like that. Um, and I know that the the hawthorn bush tree is what they made the crown of thorns from. So in in the rest of the world, the hawthorn is con- rest of Europe and well, the Christian world. The hawthorn is considered unlucky for that reason. But in Ireland, it's 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 a sign of it's where the fairies live. And if you cut the hawthorn, it's a, it's a bad thing to do. So it's a you, you'd be cursed. People generally stay away from fucking hawthorns for that reason. So that's interesting to you. I bet you that's what that was. It's something to do with Jesus, no doubt about it. So legend number, if it come for, if if the uh, if Cahan contacted a Christian saint and he'd find a sword made from yew wood, that you that yew wood must be significant with to do with Christianity or Jesus or something like that. So number th- legend number three. The final legend is one that was told to many a man named by a many a man by a man to many by a man named Bob Curran. Curran was a lecturer in Celtic history and folklore at the University of Ulster. And according to Curran, the real Castle Dracula can be found between the towns of Giarva and Dungiven. That's what Simon told me today. Dungiven, that's what he said. Where a small hill now stands. He says that it was here that the fortress of the 5th or 6th century chieftain with magical powers called Abertach once resided. I like this one. Curran's story goes that the Abertach was a great tyrant and that the people living near him wanted him gone. They were scared of his magical powers so they coaxed another chieftain to kill him. The chieftain succeeded in killing and burying the Abertach but he escaped his grave and demanded a bowl of blood from the local villagers. He was killed for the second time, but he returned again, and it wasn't until the chieftain was advised by the druid to use a sword made from you that the Abertach was finally conquered. How fucking brilliant is that? So the druid advised about the sword made from you. I'm going to find out about the you to you. That you thing has sparked my interest. So, this is it. So, Legend 4, the Legend of Jerg Jew, is another that you'll hear told by certain people in Ireland. The ancient tale revolves around a young woman from Waterford who is married married away to a cruel chieftain. He neglects her. She's left to die a lonely death. Oh. Soon after, she rises from her grave as the walking dead and goes on for the quest of revenge. This is intensified when she gets a taste for blood. 
jerkju eller guide the jerkju och okay, jag vill inte för att så man kan read that table read it myself in my own time so the celebrated author Bram Abraham Bram Stoker was born in Clontarf in North Dublin 1847 he's best known for his novel Dracula that was published in 1897 it was in this book that the world was the world was first introduced to Count Dracula the original vampire in a nutshell Dracula tells the story of the vampire's quest to move from Transylvania to Romania and England. Why did he want to move? To find new blood to drink and to spread, spread the undead curse, of course. Now, although Bram Stoker, Bram Stoker was from Ireland, it's believed that he drew the inspiration for the book from elsewhere. It's believed that much of the inspiration for the novel was spurred on from a visit Stoker made to an English coastal town of Whitby in 1890. However, Many believe Bram Stoker's Dracula drew inspiration from many of the tales of the undead that can be found in Irish folklore. Other historians believe that Dracula is inspired by Vlad the Impaler. Mm-hmm. Well, well know about that. Isn't that brilliant? I love that stuff. So, I said to you earlier on that we have a link. The bon- as in the Bonnevilles. So what I'm going to do, so a couple of years back we were asked, could we, would we be so kind as to let a movie use our, a song of ours called Long Runs the Fox. And we're told it's, it's a, a horror movie based in Northern Ireland, North of Ireland, the six counties, whatever you want to call it. We were like, of course. So we, we agreed terms, as you do. And we never heard no more about it. Quite a way. Then we got notification that the movie was due. It was called The Boys from County Hell. And what was it about? Your man, Abertalk. The very, the very one. The very same fella. Very same fella. So here's the trailer. So if you're listening to this, you may not get this on the, on the, the podcast, but if you're watching it, if you, if you, re- and I'm hoping fucking YouTube, don't, 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 don't copyright strike me for this. I'm not, it's an advert for a movie. I'm not getting anything out of this. I'm not. So don't be a dick. So we ended up getting the closing credits. We got that drop at the end. Ah, I won't, I won't. The movie was fantastic. You'll you'll recognise some of the people in it. Most notably, uh, the girl that plays Orla from the Dairy Girl. She's in it. And our friend Connor Keys told us the comedian that he was up for that role originally. I think, or maybe not that role, but one of the roles. Uh, and he he didn't. Ta- he said <laughs> tell me the other day, or the other week. He says I didn't take it very seriously. I thought it was just my mate fucking about, and he ended up making this big Hollywood movie. So Connor went with anyway. So, check this out. The Boys from County Hill, the trailer. Some things are older than science. Older than God. The Earth has its own secrets. And if you get close enough, you'll hear it. (laughs) (laughs) Haven't you guys got anything better to do? Nope. 
No, we don't. This land belonged to Avertag. He drained people's blood and drink it like water. Like Dracula. Fuck Dracula. I'd love to know if there's actually anything under there. We'll find out soon enough. I saw something weird. Whose foot's that? Fuck this, I'm out! There's a vampire on my set! This isn't Dracula. People don't get turned from a fucking bite. They get turned by the stones from Abertak's grave. Fucking move, will you? We need better weapons. Are there any ideas in there? What about sunlight? I mean, that is the number one vampire killer. Burn, you bastard. If Abertak binges all night, the whole town's gonna be dead as fuck. I moved to the wrong fucking town. You shit! Oh, come on, like, what are we supposed to do about this? How fucking brilliant is that? So, that was supposed to get released in the cinema. And fucking COVID fucked it all up. And we never got to go. And we got invited and there was going to be a premiere and everything in Belfast. And, oh, Jesus Christ, it was going to be brilliant, boys. And we never got to go. They never got to have it. Apparently, now, they're still intending to have it because it got, it got a soft release. It got released online for a bit and then it got... You know, so they're still intending on doing it, I believe, but I really don't know. I mean, as the longer time goes on, you know, the longer time goes on, it's 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 looking it's less likely, isn't it? But isn't that clap? The trailer's brilliant. The movie's fucking fantastic. You have to watch. I was oh my god, I loved the film and. It's obviously, it's a horror, comedy horror, you know, sort of a thing. And, but we get a great, the Bonnevilles get a great track. And we get, we get the drop at the end. Of the credits. Get the, that bit at the end. Won't tell you what happened. Down, I'm fucking down to tell you. I really am. But I'm not gonna. Um, that was brilliant. So, check that out. The film, I don't even know if I've said it. The boys, it's called The Boys from County Hell. And we all, if, uh, those of us living in, in Armagh, we know the county hell is Tyrone. Because they keep baiting us at football. So, that's that's an appropriate name. So the boys from county hell. There you go. Check that out. You can get it online. You can rent it online. So you should do that. These guys got really fucked with COVID. Because they, they had the bloody fella made ready to go. And they got screwed over. So, go and rent the movie online. Do the thing. Boys from county hell. That was April 22nd, 2019, for fuck's sake. So it's on Nightstream. You can get it there. You can check it all out. I've got a plan there on the screen. It's absolutely brilliant. I couldn't recommend it more. The actors are fantastic. The fucking soundtrack is world class, obviously, because the Bonneville is in it. But uh, go and check that out. So, 
that's sort of the culture bit, right? But they're going to do another wee bit. Of, just real quick, this is the last bit of culture that we're going to do. I'm going to let the, the movie play away in the background because it is kind of connected. We're near done here. Um, Did I throw up? Oh, no. I didn't want to turn the movie off. There we go. We'll turn that down. Turn that off. I want you to do me a favour. Just get... Ah, uh, yeah. So there we go. So I want you to go, if you're on Twitter or Instagram or, or, or on social media, Facebook, no doubt, I want you to go and have a look for these guys called Neolithic Ireland. I've, they've only just started this little Twitter account and I've started to follow them. And I can tell from their posts that they're labouring under a great passion. And they need to get... We need to get the Neolithic sites of Ireland protected for this reason. Let me show you this. So, I'll read this from their, it's from their Twitter. It's just what a tweet. It says, we have heritage more ancient than the Egyptian pyramids and thousands of Neolithic sites that predate Stonehenge in Britain. Yet governments in Belfast and Dublin do not adequately, adequately invest, protect or promote. And in this case, protect is the worrying thing because as you can see on the screen there this is a snippet from the independent indie is that the, the sindo independent.ie um we short paragraph here at uh, museums report big rise in vandalism of monuments and you can see there are some fucking clown has spray painted his name onto a brick or a stone from, from one of those Neolithic sites. Ace. Fucking ace hole, more like it. And I saw another one during the week. It would happen. Somebody like Decky was here or some shit like that. Real bullshit. So these guys are trying to raise awareness about these sites. And th that's it. Aye. So dismay after Neolithic Cairn damage at Lock Crew. That was the first one I've seen. The historical neglect of Neolithic sites by consecutive governments in, North, in the north and south. No, no. Increase in vandalism. Fucking vandalism. Going to find one of these things and writing your goddamn name on it. More than 70 reports of vandalism at these Neolithic sites this year. Graffiti was scratched across elements of Neolithic burial monument. Lock Crew in Old Castle, County Meath, some weeks ago. I mean, the chances of you catching these guys is fucking slim. Education is what's needed. So, uh, fears are growing about the rise in vandalism of Ireland's archaeological monuments as more than 70 instances of damage have been reported so far this year. The National Monument Service, although they have started to prosecute farmers, and I noticed that in Kerry there a few months ago, these farmers would just sort of bulldoze some tomb entrance because it was in their fucking way and they've decided to they're starting to prosecute these guys for for doing the likes of that and so they fucking should so um said that in a typical year they would get between 100 and 120 such reports but has already received 76 complaints of vandalism or interference in the first half of 2021 leading to believe it is an increasing trend god no please let that not be true there are more than 145,000 recorded archaeological monuments around the country in private and public ownership, 
some of them dating from up to 10,000 years ago. The monuments that have been damaged range from ring forts to passage tombs, and they have been targeted by vandals with graffiti, burning and other antisocial behaviour. Recent example was just that one at La Cruz that I just told you about. The investigations were carried out to determine any appropriate measures that may be taken to mitigate the damage and assist the Yardie in their investigation. The remains of Kilmashog Wedge Tomb in the Dublin Mountains was also recently scrawled with graffiti, said the OPW. Illegal metal detecting is a particular worry. Okay. And the National Monument Service and the National Museum of Ireland are working jointly to combat us. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, if someone goes up there, if someone goes up there and, uh, you know, graffiti is a, a, a rock, essentially. There's not much you can do about it at the time unless you catch them red-handed. The chances of that are pretty fucking slim. So, yeah, it's terrible. It's really bad. So we need to, we need to not be doing that shit. Because it's it's really basic, really basically needs up doing that. I'm gonna put the boys from County Hill back on because it's class. There's connected, you know, upper top. There's a monument that he was buried fucking head first into. So that's me. I'm all done. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, please like, share, subscribe. Be cool, stay in touch, and I'll catch you next time. Take care, everybody.